This morning, I'm going to have a lot of our passages on the screen, but if you'd like to follow along, you can make your way over to Joshua chapters 3 and 4, and that's uh, where we'll be looking at a lot today. I always like to joke with song leaders when they say, is there any song that you can think of that would go along with the sermon? And So as I did the other night, I told someone, anything dealing with the Philistines will be fine. You can lead that. Uh, But Jonah, he got it today, didn't he? Here I raise my Ebenezer, straight from the stories we've been looking at, where Samuel is saying, you got to realize who your hope is. you got to realize who your rock is. And I've always loved that song. It's just so deep and meaningful, and I like that throwback to the Old Testament idea and linking it then to Jesus. So I so much appreciate song leaders and the good work they do, choosing songs that are very helpful. This morning uh, in our study, we're going to get a little bit out of our chronology. And uh, I don't know if, if this is really what I had in mind or not, or whether it was just a coincidence, but the way that we've examined these lessons this week, we've gone from the areas where the Bible mentions the ark the most, kind of in descending order. If you start doing a count, you're going to find references to the ark of the covenant for the most times used, in the Samuel account. And that's going to be followed then by the Chronicles account, which will be followed by the Joshua account. Now, what we've seen so far really are are not really happy stories, are they? Not really happy accounts with what's going on uh, as we look at the people who are storming Eden and they're taking the Ark of the Covenant and they're bringing it to the battlefield as their four-leaf clover. And all of the death and destruction that follows that. And we we see King David who's wanting to do something great, but he doesn't do it by the rule. He doesn't do it by the book. And so death follows as Uzzah is struck down there. If you're not a citizen of Jericho, today's lesson's a lot more happy. (laughs) It's a lot more optimistic. Uh, Not for the people who are going to be against God, but yet what we're going to see is a time in Israel's history that's one that's, that's quite happy, that's quite exciting. As the people are in full obedience to God and God is working great miracles and He's showing the power that they have. And so what we're going to look at this morning, I've entitled this, Where He Leads, I'll Follow, playing off that old hymn, to look and to see how that God is going to use the Ark of the Covenant to represent following Him. That if you are obedient to me, that if you follow what I want you to do, you're going to see what I can do. You're going to see the great victory as you go into this land. So we want to talk a little bit about this. We're going to drop back to the Exodus and pull some things together. And then toward the end of our study, as we've been doing, I want us to see how all of this has some really important applications for us also. But let's begin with a very unusual way that the book of Joshua is going to present coming into the land. I don't know that I've always understood this the way that Joshua, uh, the book of Joshua intends for us to, but I want to share a few things with you this morning that I think will help us to see how that God wants us to view these two accounts very much together. So if you look at chapter 4 of the book of Joshua in 23, As the power of God is being recounted here, the text tells us, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. 
as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now if you notice in this, you've got parallels going on. He dried up the waters of the Jordan. He dried up the waters of the Red Sea so that we could pass over the Jordan, so that we could pass over the Red Sea. And so here in chapter 4, we're seeing these two events, these two water events being merged together But I think the emphasis of this is the hand of God that's involved. We saw that in the Dagon story, didn't we? God's heavy hand is on the enemy. God's hand is bringing them down. And here we find that in the book of Joshua also, that the hand of God is mighty. Now that corresponds when we go back to the book of Exodus, chapter 13 and verse 9. The text says, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of your Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, Yahweh or Jehovah has brought you out of Egypt. Again, look at the matching language. That's key in understanding this. That these two texts are paralleling. Well, let's take it a step further. When we begin lining up the Exodus account with what's going on in Joshua, we're going to begin seeing a lot of language that's the same. And so let me just give you a sampling of that. If we look in the book of Joshua, chapter 3, verse 16, we know that as the people are going into the land of Canaan, that God's going to to part the waters, so to speak, for them. And look at how that's worded here. He says, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. That's unusual language for water, isn't it? Something strange is taking place here as we know. However, when you think back to the book of Exodus, chapter 15, verse 8, this is the song that they're singing. They sing at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap. Same language. Let's look at another example. When we look at the book of Joshua, chapter 4 this time, verse 10, as they're crossing over, it says, For the priest bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people. According to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, the people passed over in haste. Let's go back to Exodus. How are they going to be described coming out of Exodus? It says the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. We know the reason for that. The Egyptians are terrified, but yet look at the language. They're getting them out in haste. For we shall all be dead, the Egyptians say. Let's look at one other here. In chapter 2 of Joshua, verse 24, it says, They said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. We look back to our song of victory just after the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 15. And I don't know if this particular part of the, the hymn is being given as a prophecy, or if God, through His inspiration, allowed another verse to be added to it later, whatever the case, this is what it says, Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. And then, if it is prophecy, talking about this time in Joshua, all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. 
Now, why are we finding that matching language taking place? Why is it that God is, is allowing that same wording to be used? Well, here's what I think about that. I think what's going on is God is saying to us, now we're back on track. Now we're back to what this was supposed to be. We've studied the Bible, most of us have long enough, where we know, don't we? We know that when they come out of Egypt, it's this great victory, but they're going to go in, they're going to start doubting, even to the point where God says, all right, I'm going to drop your carcasses here in the wilderness. You don't trust me, I'm not going to let you see the land. And so we have this 40-year wilderness wandering. But that's not how it was supposed to be. God was intending not to allow a lot of time to go by before He brought them out of Egypt into the promised land. It was because of their unfaithfulness. And so in the telling of the book of Joshua, Joshua is kind of merging the beginning of his story with the Red Sea crossing. So it's almost as if the 40 years in the wilderness never happened. It's as if he's merging together the Red Sea and the Jordan River language to make it appear that they crossed out of Egypt right into the land of Canaan, exactly like God had intended for that to be. So this is the rest of the story. This is the continuation of what should have happened decades earlier. Now, let's go a, a little bit further with this. When we think about, again, this language of, of Exodus and Joshua, we're going to see also a change in the leadership. Now, we remember that Moses was the great leader of the Exodus. A powerful man, and God elevated him, exalted him in the eyes of the people. We know that there were problems there, and so God says to Moses, I'll let you see it, but you can't go in. You didn't honor me in the eyes of the people, so your servant Joshua, he's going to be the one and so when we open in the book of, jo of Joshua, the man Joshua has become the new Moses. He's the one now who's taken the reins, and God is proving that Joshua is the one that he's entrusting with this. And to tie it into what we're looking at this week, the Ark of the Covenant is going to play a big role in his exaltation. Ark of the Covenant, God's going to allow him to kind of be the director of it to show the people that, yes, God has entrusted leadership now in the hands of this new leader who's going to take them into the land. So let's just look. If you're here in your Bible, back up to chapter 3. And we're going to look down in verse 3 and just go down through a series of verses rather quickly here to see how the Ark of the Covenant's going to play in this upcoming battle with the city of Jericho. If you look in verse 3, it says, The people were commanded, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. So, <clears throat> the Ark now is going to become the center of the parade. And as Joshua is being elevated, we're not quite to him yet. God is just saying, now when you see the ark, okay, this is going to be a big deal. This is the way that I'm instructing you to follow. He goes on down in verse 5 and he says, this is Joshua now speaking. He says, you must consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. 
Okay, so here, this idea of consecration is important. Because God's saying, when you come into my presence tomorrow, when I begin exercising these great signs and doing this great work, you've got to be a people who are set apart. You've got to be my special people. And everything about you has got to indicate that. All right, so we've got the ark central. The people have got to be consecrated. We go down to verse 4, the first part of it, and it says, yet there shall be a distance between you and it, the it being the ark, about 2,000 cubits in length. Now, think about what we've been saying about the ark of the covenant all week. The ark is a throwback to Eden. It's a reminder of what Eden was for Adam and Eve. A place where you met with God, where God spoke with you. But when sin occurs and humanity is kicked out of Eden, God wants everybody to remember, I'm not done, I'm not finished, but yet we're not back to Eden yet. And so as you see this ark, it's going to be a reminder that I am with you, but you don't get anywhere close to it. You keep your distance from the ark because things are not back to where they were in Eden. With a people purified and ready to have that face-to-face fellowship with God. And so as we see the command, don't touch it, don't get near it, we see that here in a very big way, this very long distance that the ark is to be in front of them, but that distance is one thing. But yet as the verse continues, we see another. He says, still though, you got to follow the ark. You look down to the latter part of verse 4. He says, do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Don't get close to it. Respect the distance that I'm giving you here. However, realize I'm I'm there. And I'm the one who's leading you into this land. I'm going to show you the way that you're to go. So here is this consecrated people. They're keeping their distance. They're following God's instruction. And in the midst of all of this, Joshua is being elevated. Look at verse 6. Joshua said to the priest, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. So now we've got Joshua, who's the director. He's the one who's giving the commands, he's giving the orders, because God is saying, I'm going to exalt you in the eyes of the people. You're the new leader, you're the one who's to be trusted in this. So that's our central place. As the children of Israel are getting ready to take their first big battle. And as they're doing that, now that they have been shown the ark, they've been told what to do, they've been shown Joshua as being the one in charge of it, he's now reached that place of prominence, and we're seeing that in verse 7, when the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And what we're seeing in all of this is God partnering with the human in order to carry out this mission of getting His people into the land of Canaan. So as we look at this relationship, it's really pointing backward 
and it's pointing forward. We think about how it, it's pointing backward. Here's Joshua that's taking the place of Moses. He's going to be leading the people. But yet, for you and I, we know this is also pointing forward in the sense that one day there's going to be someone who is not just a human who's going to be leading the people. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Okay, So we've got uh, the, the continuing story of the Exodus. We've got Joshua firmly ensconced as the leader. We've got great respect being shown for the Ark of the Covenant. And now we're ready for God to say, don't you forget who's in charge. You may have the Ark and you may have Joshua, but you got to remember who's really the one who's taking care of all of these things. I think it's interesting to note a couple of the names that God uses for himself here. We see, first of all, in chapter 3, verse 10, Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Parasites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. So on the one hand, we've got the living God. All right, we look on over a bit in the next verse, and it says, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. It's always interesting to think about why God's using the titles and descriptors that He is. Let's think about what they're about to do. They're about to go into a land that really has been allowed to, to be in existence for a long time. You remember when God made the promise to Abraham about this land? He said, I'm going to give it to your descendants, but not right away. Because the, uh, the, the Amorites have, have yet, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, have yet to be given sufficient time. So he gives them like 400 years to repent. They didn't do it. And so this land that the people of Israel are going into is a land that has been polluted by the serpent. The serpent has convinced these various tribes and groups within the land of Canaan to serve different gods. And so they're going to go in and they're going to find Dagon, as we talked about. They're going to find all kinds of variations of Baal and Asherah worship. They're going to find people bowing to the sun. They're going to find people worshiping animals. They're going to find all of this. And so God says, I think that, that description in verse 10, you're going into a place where there's a lot of dead gods. And by that, he doesn't mean gods who once were alive but are now deceased. He's talking about worthless gods. You're going into this land and you're going to see idols and you're going to see high places and you're going to see temples and all these kinds of things that are just a dead religion. But that's not the God you follow. You follow the living God who can give you all of these things. And then after going through that list of groups, he says, behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you. So what does God have full capability to do? God has full capability to take nations and displace them and to replace them with other nations. That's what the God of all the earth, it's His. It's under His control. And if He deems it appropriate to send nations away and to allow a new nation to come in, that's exactly what He can do. 
And so these two descriptions then are showing us and telling us who this God is that they are to serve. Now, here's another little interesting comparison we're going to find when we talk about what's happening now to what was happening back in the days of just after the Exodus. Let me illustrate it on the screen. Maybe uh, it'll help to, to make the point a little bit better. In Joshua chapter 4, he talks about the memorial that's to be built. And he says, he called the 12 men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. And take up each of you, a really odd phrase here, a stone upon his shoulder. Keep that in mind according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. And this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them of the waters of the Jordan that were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So the point of this is, Israel is to remember God. So he says, take this stone upon your shoulder, bring the twelve, set up this memorial, and in years to come when you're walking by and your kid says, why is this pile of rocks here? You say, well, let me tell you a story about that. Let me tell you about how God displayed his action. But now let's drop back and see another description. As God is talking about the garments of the high priest, as he's, he's telling how this uh, one is to be attired, Exodus 28 says, You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree. And here's what I want us to focus on. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulders of the high priest. So he's got these stones on his shoulders. Why? As a remembrance of the names of the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. So we've got two things paralleling here. As Israel would remember God, God says, I'm going to remember Israel. Now, was God in danger of forgetting course not. But what this is signifying is, is that when Aaron is coming before the presence of God, he's bearing the names of Israel on his shoulders. And so here we have stones on the shoulders that's working two ways to remind Israel who God is, and in a sense to remind God who Israel is, his special people. So all kinds of parallels that are going on in this section that link them up. Now let's get to the battle. As the people come into the land of Canaan, they've taken some time to get ready. And the first big battle they're going to face is at the city of Jericho, this walled city that their uh, earlier ancestors uh, thought was so scary. They're about to see poses no problem to the Lord. And so as God brings them in, the ark is going to play this really prominent role as we looked at earlier. There's going to be this parade and God says the ark is in the center and then he designates who's to be around it and where everybody's to be stationed. 
And he says, what I want is for all of this to be a reminder of you, to, to you, that this victory is not in your hands. This, this victory doesn't belong to you. So much so that you just don't worry about any kind of battle tactics right now. You just have this nice parade that you're going to take every day. You're going to follow your leader here who is leading the way for you. You're, as we mentioned earlier, that he's exalted. <clears throat> need to pause just a minute, though. Is there a danger when God exalts a leader? Do you ever find leaders in the Bible who got a little too big for their britches? They started thinking themselves very great. Yeah, we think about Saul, we think about Solomon, even David at times in his life. And I'm sure Joshua had this temptation as well. There's this really little odd story that's included, not before the big battle. I want to go over to chapter 5 here for just a minute, verse 13. Joshua was by Jericho. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. He, Joshua does what we would do. He said to him, are you for us or are you against us? <laughs> are you for us or are you for the adversaries here? Listen to the man's reply. No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. The Lord of hosts. I'm the Lord's commander. Now I have come. It's so intriguing to see what Joshua does. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Listen to the language here in verse 15. The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. That's cueing us back, isn't it? As Moses is kind of seeing this bush in the distance, it's burning and he gets closer. And the voice of the Lord says, take the sandals off your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. What Joshua is being shown is what Moses was being shown. Both men, God is saying, I'm about to work great wonders through you, but you realize who I am and you realize who you are. And let's, let's make sure we keep that straight. And Joshua gets the hint. He bows. Whomever this commander is, a lot of speculation on that, worships, and then immediately obeys and does exactly what the commander says. You drop down to verse 2. We find God making the point to Joshua, I have given you Jericho. I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Two interesting things. It's like it's already done, though it hasn't taken place. But also God's saying, it's me who's doing this because this king who's in Jericho, who's terrified all these people, he's no match for the king of all the earth. He's not going to pose any problem to what I want to do. And thus Joshua is ready to go. Look on down to verse 11. And so here's Joshua now in this role as leader. He says he caused the ark of God to circle the city going about it once and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. So Joshua now is in place, but he's been humbled. 
Remember who's in charge. All right, so the battle is now commencing. Everything's getting ready, and I believe we have a decreation event here happening. You ever thought about the weird instructions? Weird instructions. So Joshua, this is what you need to tell the people. You need to march around this city for six days with no words being spoken. Did you have this impression when you were a kid that the people of Jericho were kind of smack-talking the Israelites as they went by, you know, hanging out the window saying, what are you doing? Then you read your Bible and you know that was totally the opposite. They're shut up. They're terrified of what's going on. Because here's this God who did in the Egyptians all those decades ago, and now His people are here, and they're doing this really weird circling thing why would God say circle the city six days and don't speak a word? Well, we've got an inverse of the creation narrative. Remember, six days God created the earth and on those days God said, God said, let there be light. God spoke things into existence. What He's doing now is nothing is being spoken because he's about to decreate this pagan city that has turned against him. He's given time to repent and they've ignored him century after century. And now he says it's time to go. Then he says something's going to happen on the seventh day when you march around that city seven times. Their peace is going to be taken away. Their day of rest is coming to an end. And I'm going to bring down that city. I'm going to decreate that city and show them who the true God is of all of the earth. And that's exactly how it happens. Not so strange when you be, well, maybe so, but more understandable when you plug it into the Bible story and you see anytime you see seven, sit up and pay attention, right? Because probably there's something there that's leading back to the creation in some way. And that's what's going on here. So the city is brought down. Joshua is given great victory. The ark has shown the presence of God involved all of this. And Israel has now won the battle. We find an interesting word that's used for Joshua. A little bit later in the book, in chapter 6, verse 27, it says, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. We find that word one other time in the book of Joshua. We find in chapter 9, as the, uh, the Gibeonites are seeking to deceive the people of Israel, they say, for we have come from a far country because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard of His fame and all that He did in the land of Egypt. So two people are described as famous here. Two are described, God being one of them and then Joshua also. And what we'll see following then is this grand picture of Joshua and the people taking the land of Canaan. What a great story. Right? It's one of the favorites to teach kids. It's also a favorite for adults, I've found as well. And kind of like with our Ebenezer stone that we sang about earlier, the walls of Jericho are still in our singing, aren't they? Because this is such a mighty event that's taken place. And I think one of the reasons for this is because we're seeing this show of power from the same God we serve. And this is one of those accounts that's really easy to kind of link up with present times. 
Because you look at our songs, and don't we oftentimes compare where we're wanting to go eternally as the promised land? Don't we have a song, I am bound for the promised land? So we're, we're making the connection that just as Israel crossed through the sea and they went to the land of Canaan, that we on Jordan's stormy banks are standing and casting a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land. So our songs are, are very much in sync with this section of Scripture, and I think that's good. I, I think that's what God wants us to see. But as we consider that and what He wanted for them, it's the same thing that He's wanting for us. He wants us to understand that we are going to enter this promised land not because of our great abilities, not because of our great abilities to get everything right 100% of the time, but because we're serving the mighty God. And the mighty God is the one who is going to deliver us into that land. We think about that term that he used about his own power. And we think about how that links up with our New Testament account. We think about what Peter says in chapter 5 and verse 6. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Like so many of the New Testament writers, he goes back and he pulls terms out of the Old Testament. He brings them forward to say, this is the same God you're serving now. This is the same God who delivered the people at the city of Jericho, who's delivering you from the power of Rome or from whatever empire that may be pressing in on you. That same God is the God for us, and we must recognize with that His power in defeating wickedness. Now, that being said, we think about 1 Corinthians 15, 57, where the Apostle Paul is bringing some of this language in, and after this great discussion on the resurrection, he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is it who's going to be the one who defeats wickedness? It's going to be our Lord. So let's think about a contrast here. In Joshua, we see God partnering with a human. That's a common thing throughout the Bible. From Genesis 1 forward, God's viewing this thing as a partnership and there are expectations for humans and there's responsibilities that are given to humans. Could God have simply wiped Jericho off the face of the earth? He could have, right? But He chose to allow Joshua to be His representative. But Joshua was just a man. And so maybe hearkening back to some of our earlier sermons in the week, maybe if we were reading the Bible for the first time, we might be asking, is Joshua the snake crusher? <laughs> is he the one who's finally going to fulfill that Genesis 3.15 promise? And we read his story, and as great a man as he is, the answer that's no. He's a human, he's fallible, he's messed up. But what do we see? We see one who's going to have a real similar name to Joshua, who's born many years later, and this Jesus, we see God becoming human. Now we see the one who's the ultimate deliverer. We see the one who's going to bring the mighty hand of God and to crush the serpent's head, because here is Jesus, God in humanity's form, who is going to save the day for us. That's what we've got to see. That if we intend to make it to the promised land, 
It's not going to be on our own skill. We know that. It's going to be because we trust in God just as the people in Joshua's day, Joshua's day did. <clears throat> I think this is an interesting point that I want to share with you too. That idea of passing through the water, <clears throat> several months, it's just been on my mind. It's just one of those things that I've been contemplating. And it makes baptism make so much more sense when you just drop it down in biblical context. What's God doing at the waters of the Red Sea? What's God doing at the waters of the Jordan River? He's saving His people. They're passing through the water. Water has played an important role in the Bible story throughout. And the Apostle Paul got that, didn't he? As he was writing to the Corinthians, he said, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and they passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He could describe that a lot of ways, but he uses the word baptism here because they're covered. Water, it's like waters all around them. Spirit of God is above them. And he says they were baptized into Moses meaning He's the one who is directing them. And of course, the point the Apostle will make is, what you're seeing in all of this is a picture of what's going on with you in baptism. God is bringing you through the waters of baptism. <clears throat> so let's think about that for a minute. <clears throat> when I make the decision to become a Christian, and I'm standing there at the waters of baptism, that symbolizing is that God's going to bring me through to the winning side. That's what He did at the Red Sea, wasn't it? Took them out of bondage and brought them under His leadership on the other side. We think about the Jordan River. We think how God's bringing them out of the wilderness into the land of Canaan. Salvation. Passing through the water. When you put all of those accounts in mind, and then you start reading all these passages on baptism, baptism now saves you, is what Peter says. Believe and be baptized, and you will be saved, is what Mark says. That what this is showing and demonstrating is that when we pass through those waters, when we're baptized into the waters, the Lord is saying it is here that I'm going to remove the bondage. I'm going to remove all those things that hold you back. I'm removing the, the Egypt out of you so that you can cross over and begin your journey into the promised land. What an important lesson for us to see, even in our own salvation, to understand that God's continuing with that same message of the Bible story that we've been seeing since the very earliest of days. Let me make a couple other points before we wrap it up for today. I want us to also see that this is the God who fights for us. You remember the, the names that we used uh, describing God, this God of all the earth? It should be no surprise to us that when we come to Acts chapter 17, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. You've got 
Luke recording here the exact same message that God was telling to the people of Israel at the walls of Jericho. I'm the God of all of the earth. I'm the God who can save you. Now I want to make this point that sometimes that can seem really not to be the case. right? Sometimes we just feel so overwhelmed. Maybe we're more akin to those spies than we are at the people who are standing at the walls of Jericho. We say the cities are walled and we're like grasshoppers and what can we do? And the answer is you can do nothing, but you've got a God who can. And so we have to realize that when darkness prevails, God's going to prevail over it. I, usually when I try to quote a verse out of a song, I always butcher it up. But we'll try it here. Remember the old hymn? When darkness veils His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds beyond the veil. Is that not the message that we believe in? That when things are seeing rough, and we're going to deal with that a little bit more tonight, because things are looking kind of rough. But that's the very time when you've got to say, I serve the God of all the earth. And He's the one who's in charge. He's the one who's going to be able to save. And sometimes He does that in very unconventional ways. What would happen if, if our top commanders went to the president and said, we're about to go to war, here's our strategy, we're going to surround their capital city and we're going to march around it once a day. <laughs> the president would say, your services are no longer needed. Bring in the next guy. <laughs> But with God, God has ways of showing us you can't trust in yourself. And when He uses those unconventional strategies, what we must do is to make sure that we're good with that. And you think about how He does them with us when He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Does that sound conventional? No, God says, you trust me. Because I'm the God who still fights your battles. And what we understand is that our leader is no mere human. Our leader is Jesus Christ. And it's going to be in Him that we find that full victory. As we conclude this, I want to do a contrast with you. <clears throat> Remember the verse that we looked at? where it says, yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for we have not passed this way before. Stay back. Stay far away from that ark. And then we look at the words of our Lord. And our Lord says, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for yourself. Whereas you were to keep your distance from the Ark of the Covenant, Jesus Christ says, I want you close. I want you near. We find passages such as come with confidence to the throne of God where there is mercy and there is grace. 
And that's because we're able to see the full story. We're able to see the plan of God fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. I don't know if there's any here this morning who are not Christians, but if you are not a Christian, I sure would like for you to read that second verse where you've got the Savior saying, come to me, come close to me. Because what God is doing is desiring this relationship with you. He wants you in His fellowship. Isn't that something? And so if that question has been on your mind, is today the day? Let the answer be yes, if you understand what all this means. If you're ready to pass through those waters of baptism where your sins will be forgiven and God will save you. I hope you'll make that decision. You can do that as we stand and sing together.